Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald podcast series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. This week, I'm joined by Karen Carberry and Dr. Ted Ransor to talk about inequalities in mental health care for black communities. Ted and Karen, alongside Richard Majors, have co-edited the recently published International Handbook of Black Community Mental Health. Karen is a black British family and system psychotherapist and is a consultant family therapist at Ori. Dr. Ted Ransor is a curriculum development specialist at Michigan State University and his research explores masculinity and black male identity in educational contexts. Welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. To start with, I'd just like to ask you about the, the motivation behind the handbook. What does it do that's, that's different from what was out there? What was, what was kind of missing? Our book really looks at the lived experience. I mean, a lot of um, information that we have out there about the black experience is, you know, some reviews, statistics, but not really getting behind the real lived experience of people. And it was very important that when people read our book, they got a sense of exactly what's happening to the black community in the mental health system, uh, not just the uh, the uh, percentages and statistics about the disparities in treatment, the disparities in pay for workers in the NHS system, the racism that they have been experiencing. I know we know from Roger Klein's report, Snowy White Peaks, he talks about the level of black people in lower grades. I know some of that has started to change, but not enough. And also in terms of some of the treatment models and how, I guess, distress, how that's exhibited is not normalized for people of black and minority ethnic because there's the, in parentheses, normative state of how practitioners expect people to express their distress um, coming from really a, a white middle-class background in terms of research. So, so I think it was really important that we showcased a lot of the work out there that is where we are doing really well in terms of engaging in treatment models and also sharing some of the ways we work that can actually provide a successful outcome as well. So that was really important. And we had such a, a large contingent of very able scholars, practitioners, who talked across not just the NHS system, but also in terms of education, that we were able to share sort of a more global, holistic way of seeing what's actually happening there. And I guess with the recent dreadful experience of people observing the killing of George Floyd, that just really brought to home for many people the pain in which 
people of colour globally have been going through into, through the criminal justice system, said through the education system, just about in every system, I guess, really, some of the different types of racial experiences they've had that re-contributes to their mental well-being. And, you know, recently we've been very pleased to see that people have all come on board um, in terms of the Black Lives Matter. People from all racial backgrounds are now seeing and acknowledging, I guess, what really is happening. So in a sense, our book sort of highlights some of that across the generations, but also provides solutions to that as well. Well, uh, Richard Majors and I, the gentleman that is not here today and maybe doing something else a little bit different and going more in depth with community health and mental health challenges. So our motivation was to take some of the ideas that we've had and do things in a way that reach the people who really need it and to have more of a global impact. And Richard had a, a really good relationship with Karen and Karen came aboard and kind of changed the dynamics and definitely add the black girl magic touch to things that we've done. And as you can see from the book, that we've really tapped into the heart of what's going on and tapped into the pulse of what's happening today. And the motivation one was trying to do something that reached people, especially those of the diaspora, that touched them in a personal way that had more of a direct impact by being more accessible globally. So what are some of the main challenges that going through this healthcare system that, that has a white normative approach. What are some of the challenges that black patients experience and, and how did that show up in the lived experience within the handbook? I guess one of the things, even if we just sort of looked at Sharon Walker's chapter, Systemic Racism, Big, Black, Mad and Dangerous in the Criminal Justice System, you can see how black men are stereotyped and are as we know, disproportionately diagnosed with mental illnesses. And it was really important that we could see such a, a long history of endemic racism, I guess, in terms of the criminal justice system. And, you know, even under the COVID-19 targets of stop and search, you see a dis disproportionate number of young black men being stopped and victimized in a sense, really. So this uh, worry about black men and, you know, to some extent women, just in terms of stereotypes of being bad and dangerous. And, and then there's a, a fear about how to treat them. Here in, in the U.S., those things are pretty much the same thing here. A lot of those stigmas and representations of black males and how that applies to not necessarily interactions with the police, but also interactions with the healthcare system, but especially the mental health care. A lot of black males, for various reasons, are under different types of stress, have different types of experiences. And so when you're inter interacting with folks that may not necessarily look like you, is if you're a male of color, especially a black male, then there can be um, extended reasons for disconnect. But I think maybe one thing that might be slightly different in the U.S. for black males is that there's been a different type of perceptions with regards to aggressiveness and stability and how African-American males in, in the United States have been handling things has been something that's been called the cool pose and having a stone face and trying to eliminate 
internal or actually a better way to say it is, is to project some type of strength and some type of coping strategies. And sometimes that gets inflated to being to thinking that black males have been aggressive and also a reflective that young black males, even as early as preschool, are seen to be three to four years older than what they actually are. And so that plays a role in them being excluded and suspended and expelled in school, even in preschool, almost from, from the very beginning. And here in the U.S., which I'm Think similar to things in the UK is that once you get tracked in the system and something happens at the very beginning, now you're labeled as a troublemaker or what some may call a lad, right? And that has ripple repercussions for the rest of your life as a black male. So almost the same exact things here in the US. The men in in this country would, you know, they've learned how to, in a sense, not to present as in parentheses threatening because, you know, they know that they could end up dead, you know, essentially, if we if we look at some of these men who have, you know, needed some uh, mental health treatment and, and have sort of ended up deceased, either through the mental health system, you know, the we've, we've got in here under Sharon's chapter about the Bennett inquiry, where uh, black patients, their needs weren't adequately met. And, uh, you know, there's a long literary of people's names, Orville, Blackwood, Mark Fletcher, Manure, Youssef, Majothi, Jerome Scott, you know, and this is going back to sort of 94 and Rocky Bennett, as we know, who was restrained by four nurses for over 30 minutes. And this, this whole concern about, you know, you, you're just being stopped and asked to get out of your car. And we, we've heard recently about uh, a couple of athletes who were asked to get out of the car who had a, their little baby with them and are being handcuffed while they're searching for suspicion of drugs. You know, so this is something that we've seen on a, on a regular basis. And now I think because of what's happened in the media, highlighting the plight of black men and black women in terms of the stop and search or even just the microaggressions that actually having to find some coping mechanism to not present as uh, threatening in a sense then taps into their their own sense of self having not been able to present who they are not threatening but just in terms of assertive uh, an assertive black woman is uh, looked at as an angry and threatening woman, whereas a white woman would be just looked at as assertive. And I think we had one of our authors who talked about black women in leadership, who again was um, suggested that uh, she was unusually assertive, Hmm. uh, again, looking at stereotypes. So, you know, it's a very hard road to come out of your door each day knowing that you're going to be meeting some sort of microaggression every day. And as we know, with, with any types of stress, whether it's um, work-related stress, whether it's bereavement, you know, all those types of stresses that provide a real distress state. When you think about all of those things that are compounded and you're going into work, you're going on the train, somebody might spit at you, some might say something abusive, etc, etc. There's something that these microaggressions or over acts of racism every day and then trying to hold a job down or even find a job. And the way in which people then may want to get some help 
So stress management or something, they may ask to see somebody referred for some therapeutic support. And that isn't always forthcoming. And I know that one of the the College of Psychiatrists, one of their new uh, senior members of staff, talked about referring a chap for therapeutic support. And she'd already assessed him, thought this would be a good fit. And he was not offered. He was deemed not appropriate. She sent a second person, another black male, who was somebody who was of high intelligence and would meet all the criteria. And again, he was deemed as not appropriate. So these are things, these systemic acts of microaggression and racism that take place in the mental health system has a wider effect, not just on the individual, but also in terms of the families who may want to be supporting and the wider fighter system. And this has gone on, as we see in our book, for, you know, we talk about 30 years of overrepresentation and 40 years in the um, psychiatric system, but we know it goes much further than that. And so when we talk about sort of institutional racism it is something that's embedded within the fabric not just in terms of building but in terms of people who are making policies and developing services and people have to start taking responsibility for changing those services so that they are culturally competent and practitioners as well. So I guess what do mental health professionals need to be aware of and what do they they need to do to acknowledge that the story is different for black communities? Well, I think to add just a little bit of context. So uh, when it comes to microaggression, one way to think about it, if you may not be familiar with microaggressions, is that uh, someone's referred that to as just a cut, you know, just a cut, little small, like little paper cut here, little paper cut there. But over a series of a small period of time, you can have a thousand cuts, right? So within a week or in a month, you can literally have a thousand cuts and you're bleeding from all different places. So it's death by a thousand cuts, right? Something that happens that accumulates over a period of time. And then here in the in the US, one of the things that's happened is that, especially for black women, if you look at how interactions are between um, uh, blacks and whites, I think overall, but especially when interactions and being in rooms around white women is that the concept of white femininity has to deal with being pious and quiet and being demure and being maybe maybe having just a little bit of emotion, um, you know, to show it you know, showing empathy. And so in interactions between white women and white healthcare people um, having conversations with black women, then if a black person is faced with racism and is quiet in the face of racism, let's say because they're angry, because they're upset or because they're trying to have control or they're trying to not cause a problem because having extreme physical reactions or facial expressions when you're in a white audience, if you're the only black person, makes you highly identified, right? And so if a white woman is being quiet, let's say she makes an uh, accusation or is responding to to something where she's been talked about uh, in terms of there being something in the system or entrance policy or interaction between the patient. And they're saying, well, there may be some things that are some systematic racism. And she responds and says, I'm not racist and gets upset. The black person being calm and still 
gets the impression that they're being indifferent, that they're not being empathic, that they're not caring. And that's led to conceptions in the United States that black women may not necessarily feel pain the same way. So they're not giving the same type of medications for, for pain relief, right? So it has ripple effects that applies in big ways. But talking about the school system with regards to healthcare. So if you look at healthcare, you know, mental health care and healthcare in general, but you also look at the school system, but you also look at housing and, and inequalities, then one way to think of that, those aren't different systems. Those are the same systems because each one of those plays a role in something else if you're a person of the diaspora, right? So if you're a black person, all of those systems are systematic systems that oppress and restrict you from having or living your best life and having your full potential. Do you think that the mental health profession has has acknowledged the existence of structural racism in the system? Is that accepted universally throughout the mental health profession? I think that there's been conversations about that. And with regards to specifically in, in mental health, there's two schools of thoughts. One school of thought is we're all the same people and the processes are the same. But then if you're a person of color and you've lived your life experience around other folks who may not necessarily look like you or think like you, then the norm becomes that norm and anything out of the norm that is perceived as a norm winds up being called suspect, right? So for example, I'm a professor at a university here in the United States and I've had a student, is a female student and she's from Detroit and Detroit is a distressed area, distressed situation, housing, schooling, uh, all types of things are not going well for people of color in Detroit. And so she was having a really bad day because of racism. And then they were saying, this young lady is having problems and they took her to get tested for, you know, for mental capacity. And the short version of the story is she, she says she is in a situation where she hates white people because she's tired of all the things that have happened to her, um, being pulled over by the police, bad school. She was having a really bad day. She was institutionalized for two weeks because she says that she hates white people. Now, hate is a bad word. Maybe, maybe she shouldn't say she hates white people, but I don't necessarily think that if you are a black young woman who is distressed in Detroit, who feels oppression and she's reacting to that, not physically, but just saying, I hate white people. I need a moment to myself. I don't necessarily think that she should be institutionalized because if you look at the normative Right. If you look at the normative, right, then that is not considered appropriate. But if you look at a person as black, a black person walks in the room and said, you know what? I had these situations right now. I'm not feeling white people right now. I don't think any black people would consider that atypical. In terms of the mental health professionals themselves and people of color working in the mental health profession, what kind of microaggressions and issues around race do they experience working in mental health practices? Something that was putting the Metro by Fima Baker, a lifestyle reporter for Metro. And she talks about uh, an incident that happened last year. Maybe you might remember it. It was a Dr. Shampag uh, who sort of made headlines when a patient asked if he could have a white doctor instead of him. I do remember that, yeah. And this very powerful interview, he sort of said that the National Health Service is a jewel in the crown, but one that needs to take appropriate action to stop the jewel from being tarnished. And also he was exposing something that happens uh, on a regular basis, I would probably say, 
uh, as a, a worker in the field. And you may have even people who ring up and ask for a referral to a therapist, but they don't want a black therapist. They want to have a white therapist. And if we think about that, just in terms of psychotherapy, well, you know, the predominance of white psychotherapists juxtaposed to psychotherapists uh, of black and minority ethnic is very small. It's inevitable, really, that as a a black psychotherapist, I work with a lot of white families, a lot of white clients. And so when you go into training, you are being trained to work with white clients. You know, that is kind of the norm, if you like. And so then if you have a black client who's gone through a lot of these everyday racism and microaggression that has caused extreme distress and depression, and they may only want to speak to a black therapist, somebody who looks like them, who would understand their experience, it can cause a, a few problems, I guess, for white therapists saying that they might feel that that's racist. But there's something about as we said, talked about cultural competence, really, in terms of understanding that these existing theories and interventions that we have for depression are really constructed by specific groups. As I said before, they're mainly middle-class white professionals working primarily with middle-class white clients. So the theories and interventions tend to be sort of just uncritically transferred, really, to other affected groups without the basis of having the cultural translation. And that's what needs to take place. The training needs to make a change. You know, there's a lot of people calling out for decolonizing of the curriculum mm. so that the theories being taught are more in line with a sort of multicultural and uh, reflective way in, in able to engage and work a culturally competent and safe way because there are as I said professionals who experience sort of that type of racism with the patients and sometimes the clients who go to see also experience a level of racism that for the practitioner they haven't seen it I think you could perhaps term it as unconscious bias because it's something that they haven't raised their level of awareness or they could be racist, I don't know, you know. So let's so be real out there. And it's really important that staff who are sort of employed working in the mental health service are properly supported, you know, and talk about that term institutional racism or systemic racism. You know, we know it's a form of racism that's, as I said, embodied in normal practice and it does lead to discrimination. So it does manifest its way in so many different ways, not just in terms of criminal justice, but also the the pay gap as well between black people and white people as well in the positions and with the constant, as, as Ted has mentioned, uh, microaggression, the thousand cuts, that's something else then just contributes to their mental well-being as well. It's a, it's a lot to take, these slights every day. And as particularly, as you said, as a pr- practitioner, working in all different types of fields, I guess, in the mental health service and having the type of response that Dr. Shanpak had shared, this is at the level of everyday racism that we talk about, that um, Philomena S. said coined as everyday racism, that takes a lot of the well-being away from uh, people who are just trying to live a, a perfectly happy life. And so the personal level of racism that you talked about before, 
there has to be some accountability and they have to be able to correct that action and things need to take place within the workplace in terms of accountability for some of these personal level racism that is increasingly damaging. I think you're right that that applies to so many different sectors and taking accountability I think that you know many many white people will will categorically say that racism is wrong and that they're not racist but being able to understand themselves in that model and understand themselves how they also contribute to that system and and to perpetuating personal level racism is is I guess what's missing. Yes, you're quite right in terms of that understanding. And particularly when we think about sort of our levels of consciousness around our experiences. So sometimes when something happens in front of people, it might be a shock. And it happens for both black and white people when there's a, a initial slight or microaggression or outright racism. Sometimes people are silenced because nobody is coming forward and standing up. And as a white person, they're not saying they're just sort of in shock, but they feel a bit ashamed really about what's happened. And then they, as you said, as people start to sort of understand themselves and understand what racism is and, and the impact on people and also themselves, they will start then to look at uh, looking at their levels of awareness that really forces them to look at that they are white and what whiteness means in terms of privilege and also in terms of whether or not they shy away from the struggle uh, of black people or whether they come alongside. And, you know, it's not a linear process. It's sort of a moving up and down process of immersing themselves into different cultures and also coming out and understanding what the impact of that is on them and sort of reorientating really rather than having that sort of intellectual curiosity about black people and black and white relationships it's more about how they then reject what in parentheses bad racist white people and identify with the good white people as well so it's it's a stage that people go through when they start to develop sort of an anti-racist approach and likewise for people of black identity status again they when these things happen to them because of the way in which I'm just thinking in terms of this country how we're brought up we've got this Eurocentric white worldview unless you then start to do some work in yourself and start to understand you know exactly who you are as a black person also your history and then realize that everything that you're being taught isn't quite right isn't quite correct and I remember again reading something about a group of students who were taken to the I think this, uh, this is slave museum I can't remember where it is they were taken for a history lesson and so they went along and then they when they came back they said everything that we've been taught is incorrect and so the the uh, head said well what do you want to do and they said our history teachers need to go because all our history teachers are white and they need to go to the slave museum. And so they did. A couple of days later, they flew and went to this slave museum. And by the time they've returned, they started to change. They said, we need to change the curriculum. We know now, people know it's there in your face. There's been this big movement. What are you going to do uh, to decolonize the curriculum and decolonize the theories and also the assessments and the treatment process? So we know that COVID-19 is affecting mental health and that there's been a lot of talk around the impact of COVID-19 on mental health. Are there ways that this might play out differently for black communities? 
But one of the ways that it affects black communities, if you look at communities of color, and I know we're specifically talking about black communities, but looking at communities of color, when you go from one place to another, you normally have to go from your community to somewhere else. And so what I mean by that is that if you're a black person, most black people, especially in the United States, usually typically live in areas by other people of color, right? Because of all types of uh, institutional things that have happened with regards to housing segregation, housing discrimination, um, not being able to get adequate loans uh, when you apply for a home, redlining, all these different things, right? So a, a black person, when they go from where they live to where they work, it usually has to go through a different area, right? And outside of their community, one. The second thing is uh, people of color, but especially um, blacks in, in the U.S. here, they normally have to go to a job that's outside of their community, but also living in a distressed uh, place. Let's say, as I mentioned in Detroit, there is not that many grocery stores in the inner cities where most people of uh, African-Americans live. So you normally have to go from outside of your community where you live to a grocery store to where you work. So it's the trans, it's the transition from where you are. So if we look at containing things, um, especially with regards to viruses, closed community, if you have a tight-knit closed community that's contained in one area, but if you're a person of color and you have to work somewhere else and come back, you are one, always around other people. You're more likely to be in the service industry job. You're more likely to be a person that's not in the office or not in upper floors. You're normally around the other people. You're normally the front line, too, because of the communities that they live in and being tight knit and also being around other folks that look like you, that are also service workers. So you're in contact with more people at a larger volume. And will there be some long-term repercussions for Black communities in terms of mental health from COVID-19? Well, one of the things, as we know, the percentage of Black people admitted to critical care was like 34%. You know, in the UK, they account 40% of the population. So it was huge. And people of colour, Black and minority ethnic people, how they grieve their loved ones when they pass has had to have a huge change for everybody, for everybody, but whether it's black or white. But there are specific processes and the way culturally, the way the people are able to bury their dead and grieve their dead in a collective that hasn't been able to take place, obviously. So I think that has been something that's been very, very difficult in terms of being isolated the other thing I was going to talk about was also the fact that, again, how people have been treated through the COVID-19. I'm just thinking about globally in China, we heard about how some of the Africans had been thrown out of their homes and had to take their families and live on the street because there was this discussion around how coronavirus is um, predominantly affecting people of colour. And so out of fear, they were thrown out of their accommodation, thrown out of their jobs. So that will have a knock-on effect on families, an extended family system in which they would be earning money and sending back to their countries of origin. And the other thing, I think, in terms of uh, around covid how we've seen masks obviously had to be used for protection 
and stories of black men going to the supermarket to buy food for their families have been followed around and ejected without being able to buy food. I mean, that sense of humiliation of not being able to provide for their families or buy food for their families really demasculate brings us back to another time, doesn't it, where black men were unable to look after their families. And we're also hearing about who's getting fired from their jobs. So we know that a lot of people are losing their jobs, the downturn in the economy across lots of countries. And we are seeing a a high level of people of colour who are being let go. So, and you know, so they're this lot, the long-term effect we know globally is going to have an effect on people of all cultures and races. But in particularly, when we talk about black people and people of colour who haven't been able to access talking therapy anyway, or in a way that they can connect to the way in which they think and exhibit distress in a safe way without feeling stereotyped or without fear that they're going to be on psychotropic drugs. So, you know, I think there will be a, a, a lot of um, concern around people's mental health. But at the same time, I would say that the black community has been coming together in providing support as well. And I think that's important to say that as a collective, they are seeking answers to why there has been this um, disproportionate numbers of people of colour with coronavirus. And is there a conversation about this within the the mental health profession? Are mental health professionals and platforms where mental health professionals talk about their work, are they thinking about the ways this is playing out differently for black communities? And are they thinking about how they might mitigate against some of these long-term repercussions for the black community? Well, I think when we had our launch, the organisation who hosted our launch right at the beginning of COVID did a call for action for people to come together and to talk about what's happening when we heard, you know, the first 10 professionals or first 10 doctors who had died were from the black and minority ethnic community and some of the later discussions about why it's black and minority because they are at higher risk because they're overweight they have high blood pressure they're obese you know those sorts of things and so there have been forums where they've said well actually I've worked with this 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 particular colleague and this person was not obese they weren't overweight and they weren't poor because that was the other thing poverty these people are people who are middle class, who don't fit what they say. So something else is afoot here. So in terms of the professionals, you've got a lot of people who have been offering free counselling to the bereaved. So there has been a lot of fundraising, a lot of discussions about working collaboratively in order to help the community. And is that similar in the US, Ted? Are there conversations within the mental health profession going on about COVID-19 and the ways it might impact on black communities? Sure, there's been um, lots of conversation about that. To echo what Karen was saying, there's been a couple of conversations about Bill Gates and some other folks wanting to try or do trial tests with people of color, um, black communities, and getting them their trial drugs first. And what you may not know across the pond, 
there's a big distrust within the black community with medical professions for a few different reasons. Well, one, uh, most of the uh, gynecological experiments that were done in the United States were tested on, on black women. We also had something called the Tuskegee experiment where um, African-American males in the service were given syphilis without them being told, you know, explicitly over a large period of time. So there's been a few different things that have happened to uh, African-Americans. And so there's a large distrust between uh, the black community and the medical profession in general. And then now saying, hey, we want to come to your community. We have this experimental drug for COVID, you know, let's take it. Doesn't necessarily go <laughs> go very well. But one of the other conversations with regards to black mental health, not just COVID, but uh, going along with COVID-19, is that because of the, the diaspora, right? And so for those who may not be familiar with diaspora is has a lot to do with the slave trade, folks taken from Africa and going to other places around the globe. But because of diaspora, a large percentage of those who survived the Middle Passage were because of their blood type, right? And so you may have heard something called the sickle cell anemia. And there's the hemoglobin, right? So there's um, this actually slightly different construction in blood, folks of African descent. And that's how we made it across the Middle Passage. But because of that, and blood might be slightly different than taking antidepressant medications for African-Americans may not work as effectively because our blood type is different. And then now we're getting into um, designer drugs based on ethnicity and race. And that gets into a whole a whole nother bottle of wax. So the short version, yes, there is a lot of mental health conversations going on about how to best serve and provide for those of uh, African-American descent in the United States, yes. Are these issues around education, around community, all of these different aspects that affect the Black live experience, are they brought into mental health training for professionals or is that something that's really missing? One of the chapters that we have is we have a couple of chapters on ASD and mental health. And one of the important things to think about is that already your children are stigmatized. They already, you know, we already know that as children grow up, they're going to be stigmatized. And so it's very important that they have a strong protective factor in terms of their sense of sense of their identity sense of their their self so one of the things i think sometimes uh, with the black community would be that they don't want to see their child sort of diagnosed with a education deficit even you know even if i think about a physical deficits you know if, if people need a hearing aid or something like that you know i think there probably needs to be a lot more research around that area but so in terms of being told that your you know your child isn't working to the best of their ability or is not on par with the rest of the class you know again sort of sets up the children in terms of impacting their sense of um, identity and their self sense of self-esteem Sharon Byfield and Tony Talbot talks about targeted intervention in education and the employment of emotional well-being of boys that it's really important that the young people have a sense of that they can achieve even more so than just that, oh, yes, you can do that. But, you know, that they have a sense. They can see people who look like them who have achieved. I think that's really important if, you're, if you've got a teacher who looked like you. When I think about the, I do a lot of work in the Caribbean and uh, the level of attainment is phenomenal in the Caribbean and not enough of that is talked about. Although everybody, whichever country you're in, they would suffer some degree of mental health. The level of mental health in the Caribbean is much lower than it is 
in Europe. So in terms of the the Caribbean, I'm just thinking about Jamaica, the work I do some in, in Jamaica, you have teachers who look like the pupils. There's a sense of expectation that they will achieve and how education is really important for black families and black parents, you know, and they do achieve because that's the expectation. Whereas when you're in a school whereby you are not expected to achieve and that's going to affect your mental health well-being and also your confidence. So when uh, Sharon Byford and Tony Talbot talk about the the work targeted intervention in, in education, that's so important and key that these boys and girls can develop training, develop their skills and confidence and address any negative impact that might come against them so that they can move through that. And as Tony said, you know, a lot of these young people they've worked with have gone on to Oxford and Cambridge. You know, those things are really important that we put that training in in I would thought every school really where there are black children are. And you could say, well, that should be for everybody. But when you have statistics that say, well, you know, there's underachievement both in school or in university that black people drop out, black young people drop out of university. And, uh, you know, we have to really attack that fabric where they feel that they're not, don't feel valued. And that is in the curriculum, I believe, really, as well. Well, is there anything that you feel we didn't address or? One of the things I would like to sort of say is that, you know, Jen McCall, the uh, senior publisher at Emerald, you know, our book launch, she said that our handbook is one of the most important handbooks that we published by Emerald this year. And for me, that was really, really encouraging in that, you know, we published at such a time as this with solutions that can meet so many different needs transgenerationally across the family life cycle, but also a guide really in terms of teaching for mental health teachers and other practitioners who will be able to read this and say, okay, this is what I need to work on. This is what I need to be able to open my mind and raise my level of awareness. And one of the things that I am seeing as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement as a, and as a result of what the global response to George Floyd is that companies are taking note. They're not only just making statements, but they're also making changes. And, you know, that's a big deal. It is a, a fragile state, if you like, when you are, you, you know, you need to respond and do something, but how do we do that? So I think in terms of being able to have a deeper understanding across the whole uh, socio-political aspect of society, being able to raise your level of awareness and be able to make a change is only going to have a good effect for all. Absolutely. Well, that was pretty impressive. Well, um, I do want to say that um, as a black male um, who's a professor at a predominantly white institution, is that I actually have a lot of good days. I actually go to work. Everything is, um, you know, I actually have a fairly pleasant life, right? I do a lot of work with, um, you know, issues with regard to mental health and, and cognition, but I also do a lot of work with regards to su supporting uh, Black males, right? And I work with a lot of folks from a lot of different races. I have a few white 
uh, colleagues that I work with, they send me articles and do research on black males and they show me and bring me stuff all the time about stuff I didn't even know about, right? So, so I have a lot of really good, pleasant relationships, right? But sometimes I go to work and some stuff happens or someone says something or I have a student come to my office and talks about their interactions. And I really just am quiet for a long period of time because I really don't want to be labeled angry black guy, although a lot of times I am. Most of the time I'm not. But I get that a lot. But what, I, what I'm getting at is for the colleagues that I do work with and the great relationships that I have with students, you know, some black, you know, you know some white, the great relationships with students. I think one of the challenges is the really good, great relationships that I've fostered with uh, white colleagues have been, you know, very satisfying, very fulfilling, get along great. But I can't tell, or I wouldn't have been able to predict that I would have these great relationships with these folks um, by looking at them. And I think that's the key, is being open and being able to, uh, you know, you know, be patient, but being open and, and, and focus on being aware and establishing relationships. And so what I, well, I guess what I'm talking about, what I'm getting to, is you can really can't judge a book by its cover. And that's kind of getting into the essence, you know, making assumptions about people of what they look like. There are so many folks who have come out of, quote unquote, the woodwork, who are now allies of all different colors, of all different races. And now everyone seems to be aware. So this is the time, as Karen talked about, where people are doing some phenomenal things. And so we're making large broad changes. So that's a good focus. But focusing on the ev every day and being able to say, hey, you know what? I don't necessarily think that's the right thing to say. Or maybe we should handle this a little bit different. Everyone can contribute to making a positive difference. And if we can focus on everyone pushing a little bit harder, or pushing a little bit further, we can push through racism and get to the next level. Thank you both for a really engaging and an eye-opening conversation that was that was brilliant thank you well i appreciate you and i appreciate emerald press thank you for everything that you've done thus far look forward to the very near future yeah thank you ever so much i did enjoy it actually next week we will be talking to asha rospiliosi an economic sociologist at the university of brighton We'll be talking about the concept of the fully functioning university and how institutions can rise to the challenges presented by COVID-19.